You're listening to Board Gamers Anonymous, episode 41. This week we're talking about the top 10 board games that could be RPGs, along with Shadows Over Camelot, Merlin's Company, and Fresco. Listening to a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron, but with better lip syncing. Find out more at dicetowernetwork.com. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, a podcast with gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Anthony. This is Chris. This is Daniel. And this is Drew. Welcome to the episode, everybody. Episode 41. This week, we're looking at our top 10 games that would work as RPGs. So these are games that are not already RPGs uh, or themes that are existing in RPGs in some form. We had to get a little creative, but it, it should be a fun one. Um, but first things first, let's jump off and hand it to Drew. With a little good news from the tabletop. Um, some quick little PR notes um, about the gaming industry. There is um, a board gaming comedy show that premiered at the Edinburgh Festival a few months back. This guy's taking it on the road in England. It's called the Always Be Rolling. He also has another show that he created called Pandemic Live. And I'm wondering when that's going to cross the, the water and come to the States. I would love to see. So it's, it's become such part of our culture. We need, we need more live shows. Well, hopefully it'll catch on, Drew. Yeah, well, board games make good comedy. <laughs> small World, can you imagine like a, a, a dance review of characters from Small World? Yeah. I would love like a literal, like, have you ever see that video of what a conference call would be like? Like when everybody's in the room together? Yeah. And they're just, like, so somebody, they'll come to the door and they'll ding dong and then they'll disappear from the room. Like, hey, are you still there? And they'll talk over the top of each other. <laughs> yes, I've seen that. And they're all in the room together. Like, you should do something like that with a board game. Like, you just point out the absurdity of how we abstract some of these rules. Oh, man. Like, it just made me think of that with the pandemic. I'm like, oh, it'd just be like an outbreak. I'm like, no, it wouldn't. Because you'd have somebody like hopping between different cities and pulling cubes off of... I Can you write this down? We need to explore that in a future episode. I, I think we need to do that. There needs to be uh, another episode of the top 10 board games that would make great sitcoms. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that would be a good one. Yeah. We can do that. I like okay. that one. Yeah. Um, note that. And, and if you folks uh, don't hear that anytime soon, write to us and demand it. Yeah, it means we forgot to write it down right now. We forgot. <laughs> <laughs> Something really funny. You know those travel website commercials on TV with the gnome showing up all around the world? Mayfair has done this with its little robber token from Catan. And they're, they're posting to their Facebook and to the Settlers of Catan Facebook page little photos of the robber in all sorts of different huh. uh, circumstances. So you got to check that out. It's, it's awesomely funny. Um, if you also want to see games uh, show up in another place, uh, someone on Reddit says they've been seeing Rio Grande games pop up in different places in movies and TV shows. The latest example was Gone Girl, that movie that's coming out. Um, happened to see an advanced copy. And there are a couple of Rio Grande games, Dominion and Race for the Galaxy, that show up easily visible in a scene of that. And then they, this thread started talking about um, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Dominion showed up in that. Arctic Scavengers could be seen in Silicon Valley. They're wondering, would a game company buy product placement? I mean, I can see um, Big Bang Theory, something like that, like paying to be featured on Big Bang Theory. Yeah, this is so. That's actually kind of funny because, like Rio Grande, they don't have booths at Gen Con or Essen. Maybe they're spending their budget on product placement. <laughs> Hmm. Be weird. They're going right to the yeah, right to where we live. 
That's how you get into people's homes. Yeah. yeah. So I thought that was cool. Um, and in the, the notes for this, I'll, I'll link to that thread. Um, I would love to actually look up those episodes and see if I can't find those clips. But that's another time. There's a, uh, a new website. You talked about Extra Life last week in our show. And there's another fundraising website called Donors Choose that uh, this one group is using to start a collection, a board game collection for a school library, games that kids will, will learn from, that they'll enjoy, that will stimulate the thinking activity. The, uh, the group is called DonorsChoose.org, and uh, it's, uh, it's a group out in St. Louis, and I'll post the link for that also. The, the theme of the website is Teachers Ask, You Choose. So these are things that teachers are looking for to, I mean, the schools are always looking for funding, so it's a way that we can help. Yeah. And in this case, it's board games in the classroom. So I think it's pretty cool, a pretty cool thing to raise money for. Oprah likes it, so... <laughs> oh, then it's going to succeed. She loves yeah. that website. <laughs> so it's worth checking out. And speaking of games in schools, in Nigeria, there was an article in um, one of the newspapers there. I'll post that link. Um, a mathematics game for young kids. But it's not just a game that teaches kids math. It's a game that was developed by, by older students to help younger students. And they get in this whole thing about math anxiety. You've heard about that before. Um, now, this is what one professor from Las Vegas said about math anxiety, a feeling of tension, apprehension, or fear that interferes with mathematics performance. Now, now maybe you've never had a problem with anxiety affecting your performance, but it does happen in math. And that's why uh, these kids in Nigeria came up with this game that just puts kids at ease and lets them have fun with it. It's funny, they quoted this one student who was one of the inventors, that during the process of inventing the game, my mom started complaining as a result of the dice she saw me with because she thought I started gambling. So I had to isolate <laughs> myself while, play te while play testing the game. <laughs> no, Mom, I'm trying to help young kids learn math. <laughs> yeah. Sure you are. What are you doing sure. with those dice? Uh, oh, man. But that's cool. That's a good little uh, feel-good story. I got to end with a feel-bad story, though. Um, a lot of flack that uh, Fantasy Flight has taken for shutting down their number one fan site uh, for the game is Netrunner DB because uh, I guess they were using the images from some of the cards, but it really was such a lively, vigorous fan site it really brought people to the game. It wasn't drawing attention away. And this, uh, this, this one analysis I was reading compared it with Magic the Gathering, they encourage everybody to make whatever you want from it. They don't have a problem with it. Magic hasn't been hurt. I don't know why Netrunner would have a problem. It, so they sent the cease and desist order, and I sure hope that's not uh, something of the future, where these companies start shutting down websites yeah. that are created... It seems borderline, like fair use, though. Like they're not trying to make money. Were they trying to make money no. off of it? If it's yeah. a free website and they're talking about the cards and how they're used, I don't yeah. see why that'd be a problem. Yeah, that's that's very strange. I don't know if that order, cease and desist, would be enforceable if they challenged it in court. Well, the problem is though, like you have any resources to challenge it against a big company. Yeah, you, you have. think like what you really just want to do as a company like this is buy it, right? Be like, hey, we really like what you've done here. We really want to integrate it with what we're doing more, so we'd like to buy it. Maybe even bring the creator on board as as an administrator for the website, and that way you get positive PR. Show that you're yeah. taking the fans seriously. This way is just. That's bad PR. Yeah, this yeah. is really... They have... Now, now they have... Uh, Fantasy Flight has an official website, but it just... You know you know how official websites just aren't really very... It's not a very good website either. No. 
Um, it reminds me of there was these guys who used to have they ran this fan site or maybe it's a fan Facebook page for Coca Cola for a long time, yeah. and instead of going to them and being like you can't do that and use our brand, Coca Cola hired them, and then they brought them yeah. in. They're like make videos of our products and go do this. We'll give you a budget, yeah. like own it, take a part of it. That's the way of the future. You know, people, another thing with a lot of fans is Doctor Who, and they're making videos and doing all sorts of stuff, even using copyrighted images. Some fan came up with this little cool intro to Doctor Who that the, the producers adapted. They had this guy, they took his idea for the intro, and that's the new intro for the season's Doctor Who. Yeah, you, you incorporate the fans and what they've done. Yeah. You make them a part of it. They've pulled plot points from fan theories in Doctor Who, right? So yeah. the whole idea that the word Doctor, we get its meaning from him, not the other way around. Um, and that every word has, the, every culture has this word and means different things depending on how they related to him. Yeah. Uh, that was, you know, a really cool idea that came out of a fan theory and they pulled it in. And that's a good way to relate to your fans, right? Definitely. And especially when you're dealing with a creative property, right? pulling in a big fan site and being like, hey guys, what do you want to see in the next expansion is essentially saying, hey, give us a couple thousand hours of free labor developing cards for this game. (laughs) And people will do it, but not if you disenfranchise your fan base. Yeah, That's a big misstep. So Fantasy Flight took a big hit uh, PR-wise with this. I don't know down the road if that'll have a dent in sales or gameplay, but it makes them look bad. Well, it will disrupt the community, right? So you yeah. won't have as many people sort of evangelizing for it, and that's going to be... And we don't want that to become a trend. So no. Definitely. And that is good and bad news from the tabletop. All right, so next up we're going to take a look at some of our acquisition disorders for this week. Acquisition Disorder Corner. All right, so acquisition disorders this week. Um, I'll start off again. As always. <laughs> you got a problem, man. You got a problem. Which is awesome because it's perfect for this segment. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's a game coming out, and there's been this trend lately towards games that integrate tablets or phones or technology in some way. Um, One Night Ultimate Werewolf, we talked about a little bit and we played recently. Uh, XCOM's coming out. That's going to make much more use of this. So this is a game coming from CGE soon. Uh, I think it's releasing at Essen. It's called Alchemists. And the goal of the game is to develop theories and integrate different ingredients, but the, at the end, you have to have been correct. So you could score points throughout the game, but at the end, you'll find out if your theories were correct or incorrect, and you'll gain or lose points based on that. Um, but it uses, it makes heavy use of an iOS or Android device to randomize the elements of the game and the different things you'll have available. Uh, I don't know how this is going to play out, because we haven't really seen any of these games that really heavily use these devices yet. There's a lot of them coming. But I do like the idea of using them to randomize because it really extends the lifespan of a game. If you, if there's a way to randomize, it doesn't have to be packaged in the box. You can add stuff to an app overnight. Like Developers can just add something over the weekend instead of having to print and publish and ship a whole new expansion. Um, again, I don't know how that'll work or if they'll take advantage of it or if it'll just flame out and maybe won't be able to play that game anymore because the app isn't being supported that's another issue but this seems cool the game looks pretty interesting the artwork looks really cool so it'd be cool to see how it plays yeah there's been a lot of talk about that as far as trying to incorporate because typically you know in the u.s european kind of first world environment we all have our phones with us or our pads so why not incorporate them in some way usually they're incorporated when you have downtime right 
So you're looking at something else. But that's been a, a vein of controversy, you know, if you should incorporate something that either may not be supported later on or does it add or does it take away from that social element or the game element? Yeah, for me, I, I tend to think of gaming time as phones down time, yeah. kind of like meal time, right? Just, it's yeah. time to be with your friends, be, be present, right? Um, and so I'm generally not too fond of that unless it's going to do something that could not be done with physical tokens. Like, there's been some talk of using augmented reality to create mm-hmm. sort of board games that would be really unique, right? You could even have the game board look different from every person's perspective, right? So you could do partial information and that sort of thing. And that would be really cool. It would also be very hard, but it'd be really cool. Um, <laughs> but just essentially putting randomization in the hand of a device, it's probably a cost-cutting measure and be effective in that way. There's less to ship. That's nice. It's easier to expand, like you brought up a minute ago. But I mean, I think it goes deeper than that. That's kind yeah. of just the surface level of what it does. All right. Um, it's definitely a major core mechanic of the game. Yeah. Um, I know in XCOM, too, it's even further to that point because it mm-hmm. involves the timing of the game because that game's timed and a lot of other elements. Uh, without seeing, without playing it, it's hard to talk about what it's going to do because they can yeah. describe it and it's like doesn't quite jive yet, but yeah. it sounds interesting. I want to see what it does. Yeah, if they take advantage of it and they do something that could not have been done with a pure pen, you know, physical board game, then that's cool and I'm in. But if it's a shorthand to sort of compact make make more make physical pieces more compact and processes that are typically handled through physical pieces more compact that's not as interesting to me yeah they're trying to save money i'm not i'm not on board with that (laughs) it'll be interesting how it plays out yeah and sometimes it's an environmental kind of thing i know agents of smirsh they had the situation where you had the book with all the different outcomes and you know tales arabian nights has huge books if you can just kind of whittle that down to something you can have on your ipad or your iphone it could save a lot of money and a lot of equipment and a lot of shipping so there's possibilities good and bad on both sides for that could yeah. save you your back from having yes. to cart, cart <laughs> yeah. all that around but there's yeah. still something nice about having the physical book well, Arabia, yeah, tales yeah. of arabian nights was always impressive it was like wow this is a <laughs> game huh? <laughs> look at that book well, they were smart enough to put it in ring binders too, which is cool. Yeah. Yep. Easy, to, easy enough to use. But yeah, yeah. The, the weight sometimes is an indicator of quality. Mm-hmm. Not always. <laughs> yeah. Not always, that's for sure. Um, my game is Stefan Feld. We always look forward to his to see just how many points we can rack up. Um, his new game is La Isla. It's an exploration game, um, tr- exploring islands. And I guess you are... Uh, looking for animals to capture and bring back with you, and scientists can study the, the new species. Uh, it's it's basically a hand management, and and each turn is is four different steps. Three of them involve cards, and then fourth is a worker placement. But what's cool is in reading this that I want to try out is all the cards have so much information. You have to decide. You can use the card to give you a special power. You could use the card to give you resources, or you could use the card to give you certain bonus points for certain animals that you're collecting. You have to decide how you want to play your cards. So hand management is is a crucial factor here. And then what kind of animals and what combinations and how they combine with the cards that you're playing. So it looks pretty cool, and it looks like the kind of game where Stefan Feld is corralling his tendency to just pile points on points. I want to... (laughs) curious I, I like being able to use cards in novel ways hand management games are cool yeah his games are getting more and more refined you know yeah. if you look at the list of games he's released it's something like 12 13 games in the last 10 years 
So, and last year he had four. Yeah. This yeah. year's two. So, they, slowly but surely, they're finding it down. Like, you can have a ton of points, but it's not the sprawling yeah. experience. Well, That's practice some, makes perfect, right? Yeah, I mean, they're all good, too, though. It's just yeah. a matter of, like, different things for different types of people. It's not necessarily a brain burner, or it's not necessarily this component fest. Castles of Burgundy is a great game, but there's stuff everywhere. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's one of these games where you have to try it once. It's a Steffenfeld game. You got to play it. You may not like it afterwards, but you gotta check it out. He puts a lot of thought and a lot of a lot into it. Yeah, he's one of our favorite designers. And yeah, I've yet to be completely disappointed when having these games. They all have good aspects to them, even the older games, and the newer games are just brilliant. Yeah, I'm not a fan of In the Year of the Dragon, but I think that's the only one I haven't liked. But I'm really excited for Aquasphere too, which is coming out. Soon. But it has some good elements to it. It has some interesting. Yeah, the reason I don't like it is the same reason I don't like Agricola. Like I can look at it and it's a good game, but I don't like a game where you're just constantly getting hit in the head by the game. <laughs> like, can I just play this? Can I have some fun? No, all your stuff dies. All right, well, that's good. It's weird how Felt shows up and just kind of keeps clocking you on the head with the game, Anthony. I don't know why he does that. I don't know, man. I, what did I do to this man? I like your games. Uh, Leave me alone. If you say Felt three times, he shows up. And awards you a thousand points. <laughs> yeah. well, that's how he gets paid for his games, by the point. By the point. Oh, is he a percentage of points? That's right. Oh, well. <laughs> man's a millionaire. That's right. He's got, a, he's got an underhanded contract with a point-making company. So <laughs> that's what they mean in Hollywood. When an actor signs a contract, he gets points. He gets points. Yeah, he gets yeah. points. Felt took that way too far. <laughs> <laughs> well, one game that I'm really looking forward to is Abyss. Now, you might know this game for its interesting cover. It has this kind of aqua creature on it, kind of big blue and green. Or actually, what you actually really might know it from is the multitude of different box covers. There's actually five different box covers to this game. And as far as I know, I think this is the first time where you had alternate artwork just for the cover of the box. So when you order this game, say online, you may receive or you will receive one of these different box covers and you really don't have a choice there. Beautiful artwork does not have the name on the front of the box. It just has that picture of whatever that creature may be. And the gameplay itself is interesting. Slightly a pace it on theme, but this underwater kind of political entry game where you get these different characters and it's it's a basically hard, you know, hard card management kind of game. So there isn't a lot of board game components to it. But one of the board game components that it does have is pearls. Now, real maybe, power pearls? Well, it would be nice if it was real <laughs> pearls, but it actually has these plastic pearls that are the currency for the game. So a beautiful, well done, high complex game, and it has pearls. So it's something I want to check out. Interesting. If you are drop them on the floor, yeah. they, they scatter. They are they spherical? Because that sounds like a bad idea to they me. Are. <laughs> they are. Like, oh. They look like real pearls, but you got these little cups, so you'll be okay. Okay, okay. let's okay. hope so. Until someone knocks it over, son of a. What's the pre-order price on that? It's sixty retail, forty-one. Ooh. Wow. So if you bought all five, well, I don't think anyone's gonna. Well, I guess if you're an <laughs> Uber Uber Abyss fan, you'll pick oh, up all of them, and that would man. be pretty difficult. But yeah. it's somewhat an overly priced, overly kind of, you know, blinged out kind of game, but. If it, if the game plays good, why not? Now, yeah. if the five covers nested inside each other like those Russian dolls, I could see that. <laughs> uh, 
It is interesting, and it's the kind of game that makes you feel not too worried about Days of Wonder being owned by Asmodee now, because the production quality on this is super high. Yes. So you know that they're taking it seriously. Yeah. Well, for me, my acquisition disorder this week, last week during our At the Table, I mentioned that I've been playing Summoner Wars a bit recently, and I played it a bit more, and I've been tinkering around with the game and, and getting my getting the feel for it, and I am absolutely certain now that I both want and need to buy expansion packs for this game, because the master set is great, but it is really more of a proof of concept of what the game can do than the game itself, because there's no customization in it, there's no... Uh, none of the cooler factions are included. It's very, here's, learn the game really quick, tutorial. Um, and it's great for that. But I think I really want to pick up some expansions to uh, build on the game, right? And I think that's where the game's uh, appealing... I think that's where the game's selling point comes from, is that it's so easily expandable, that it's so easily modifiable, and that it continues to grow. Um, so I'm going to pick up a number of those expansion packs and I was wondering if you guys had any suggestions as well as our listeners if you guys have any suggestions leave them in the comments for me um, I know the second summoner stuff is supposed to be better uh, in general it, it handles some of the problems from the first set which were the, the minions were completely disposable and sometimes you would even kill your own minions just to build your magic yeah. and just try to rush out your champions yeah I mean I would say too Phoenix Elves second summoners are a little OP None of these are super OP because it's the game itself is very well balanced. They spend, a, I'm sure they spend a ton of time balancing it out. But in certain situations, that deck is decently powerful, unmodified. Um, any deck modified is going to be it's it's a game where you can modify your own deck. So it's, it's up to you how good it is. But in that case, meh. Um, I actually really like playing the filth. <laughs> okay. Yeah, where you get to uh, mutate your own minions. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so you have minions which. Some of them play for free, but you can upgrade them with various mutations that turn them into not quite champion level, but much better than minion level. Okay. So it's kind of a fun deck to play, too. That's really cool. Yeah, I like the jungle elves because they, they play differently as far as moving kind of real quickly. So if you played Summer Wars before, positioning and movement is a really big part of the game. So being able to kind of move those cards out really quickly early on is fun. And the Guild Dwarves, which is completely the opposite. They're not about speed at all, but instead of having these kind of boring kind of minions in the game, they actually have towers. So when you play the towers in the game, they have ranges which they can shoot, but they also have other cards that'll actually let you move the towers. So you'll actually imagine this kind of thematically of these giant towers kind of moving on a battlefield towards you, shooting cannons out. So it's a lot of fun. Those are my two favorite factions. Okay. And, you know, in addition to that, what's really great about the second summoners is you don't want to get your summoner killed because that ends the game for you. But with the second summoners, the summoners themselves have a lot more abilities, a lot more special talents in the game. Mm -hmm. So you can actually play them instead of just defend them throughout the whole game. Okay. Do you guys think that the mercenary packs add anything as a faction neutral way to mix things up? or Mercenaries are pretty cool. I mean, the... the Especially when you want to attack the walls. Like, if you're going up against somebody who's very wall defense-based, um, any of the orcs, for example, mm -hmm. they the mercenaries make it a lot easier to kind of go after those walls. Mm -hmm. um, and they can just... They mix things up a little bit, and so you can tweak your deck in a way that you... Like, it takes things a little off-theme. Yeah. Which is fun, because otherwise the deck is very... Every deck is very thematic to that faction. The mercenaries let you mix in a little something else, since you can't mix factions. Okay. Yet... Until yeah. the new master set is out with you. And when is that coming out? 
It was originally going to come out in October. They literally just posted this week that it's been delayed towards the end of the year. So uh-huh. hopefully by the end of the year. All right. Well, that'll be an acquisition disorder for later then. Yeah. <laughs> Already on my list. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So that's all the acquisition disorders for this week. Next up, let's take a look at what we've been playing lately. At the table this week. At the table this week, I'll let Chris lead it off. So, I had the opportunity this week to play Shadows Over Camelot, Merlin's Company. Now, originally I played Shadows Over Camelot, and it's a really interesting Days of Wonder game where you have a trader mechanic that can play into the game. So, this is your classic Arthurian legend, and you're trying to get white swords, enough white swords, a majority of the round table in white swords in order to win the game. So it's a co-op game. And as I said, you can play with the trader mechanic or not. Now with Merlin's company, it adds something a little bit different. So now you're actually going to have Merlin play a role in the game. Merlin does a number of different things. First off, you'll have a Merlin card, which will allow you to get rid of some bad stuff. Now you're going to need that card because in Merlin's company, it adds a lot of extra bad stuff. So you'll have some witches in the game that cause some trouble. You'll have a mechanic which didn't, which the original game did not have, which was when you wanted to move from one spot to the other, you just moved. Now, when you move from one spot to the other, you have to flip over a travel card, and I would say probably nine times out of ten, it's going to be some bad stuff. So you're going to need Merlin to kind of help you out with that. In addition, when Merlin's in a certain location, you'll able to be able to draw an additional white card. Now, these are the cards that bring you good stuff throughout the game. Also, as I mentioned earlier, there's a trader mechanic because you'll get loyalty cards in the beginning of the game. So you might be loyal or you might be a trader. With Merlin's company, there'll be an additional trader card in the game. So it is possible to have two traders in the game. You'll actually draw enough cards to start with that one card will be discarded. So you may have only one trader instead of two which adds to a little bit of, you know, who's who, and maybe there's a lot of bad people with us, maybe there's some good people, but you'll also be able to accuse one of your fellow knights of being a traitor, which will actually knock them out of their kind of powerful role, but they'll actually get to still do some bad stuff in the game, kind of like Battlestar Galactica. So it's a fun game, and it has a lot of interesting kind of dynamics to it. I was gonna, I'm glad you brought that up, because everything about it made me think of Battlestar Galactica. Um, how does gameplay compare between the two? Yeah, I mean, there's a, it, it's very similar in that way because you do have a number of different locations to visit, like Battlestar Galactica. But f- with Merlin's Company, it plays a lot like a little a bunch of different mini-games. So there's one location where you'll be playing a, battle cards to make a certain, like almost like a poker hand. Three of a kind and two of a mm-hmm. kind, or you're trying to play a straight one, two, three, four, five. So there's one location where you're trying to move Excalibur to the, to the good side so that you'll be able to use it. There's one location where there's the Holy Grail and you're trying to move it towards hope and away from despair. So you'll be playing cards. You'll be playing Holy Grail cards to move it along the lines. And then just because the game keeps pulling out bad cards, it'll move it back and forth. And then obviously the trader gets to play cards in the game too to kind of throw things off. But the trader wants to do things very quietly. So as a trader, you want to help the fellow knights. But when you can kind of mess with them, you want to mess with them. Yeah. There's also spots where catapults will be added to the board that will be attacking Camelot. 
and you'll have an opportunity to knock those out. And then when you complete certain objectives in certain areas, they'll flip over and there'll be additional kind of mini games to play. I always wanted to play this, and it, I guess just nobody in our game group had a copy. It just never came out. Um, it's obviously also a game that requires a good group of people. Yeah, this is a game where you want everyone to play their role, and you want everyone to play their role effectively, because if you don't, the game kind of goes bad really quickly. And you got to have people who are friendly enough to be okay with the betrayal, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that can be a problem in some, some groups where the, the traitor is... Yep. I've had some bad Battlestar games. <laughs> and the problem with, the, with this type of mechanic, and we, we, we gave our uh, kind of top list about this way back when, is that if someone is not playing in a understandable, logical, reasonable way, you're going to go, you're the traitor, and that kind of breaks the game down. While it is the fun of the game... You, it shouldn't kind of throw the game completely off. So you shouldn't be playing the game and thinking, well, I know there's one traitor in the game, but there's four other people that are playing like traitors. <laughs> so it's a fun game. It's a play. And if you are going to play this game, play with Merlin's Company. It adds so much more to the game. At the table for me this weekend, both, both uh, Chris and Anthony joined me playing this game was Fresco, which I picked up on Super Duper Ultra Sale at a local <laughs> hobby store for $12. Now, was uh, it $12 they were paying you to take yeah, it? Pretty much. Right? You got to that point. It had like four different sales stickers. The price was actually lower than the lowest sales sticker because they just stopped putting sales stickers on it because <laughs> they couldn't get it off the shelf, apparently. Because it, it was becoming cost-effective because the stickers were costing them money. <laughs> exactly, right. Um... But so we played Fresco and he played with just the basic set, so he didn't use any of the modules. Uh, and Fresco is a game where you play as painters trying to restore a fresco by order of the bishop, and you're trying to earn victory points by doing the most of it, right? The most important, the most impressive work, essentially. Um, and it was a pretty fun game, I think. It's pretty basic, uh, it ran kind of straightforwardly. Uh, but that can be fixed by adding the modules in. I, I think once you add the modules in, it'll add a little bit more complexity, a little bit more, uh, a little bit more chaos, uh, the the good kind of chaos, right? Where things can branch off in different directions as opposed to being very, very straightforward. Um, but even with just the base set, I think it was a fun game. And this isn't usually my kind of game. I don't know what you guys thought though. I like this game quite a lot. When you first look at the game, it looks overwhelming because you're seeing all these different paint you know that you had to kind of mix together and the the privacy boards kind of show you all the different options i really enjoyed this game usually when i look at one of these queen games i'm kind of intimidated by the amount of expansions and modules that it comes with because you never know if it's missing something when you're playing or if it needs five or six of these things added this game looks intimidating there's all these paint swatches the privacy boards you have a little board with all your little meeple workers there's just so much that this seems to do. And when you play it, it plays very thematically. It makes sense. And it was one of those games that I thought that each step of the way, it was just going to kind of get ahead of me. But, you know, you're just, you're just kind of playing your paints. You're kind of picking your times. And it makes sense. And it's just, you know, over and over again, I really enjoyed playing this game. And it's something that I would definitely want to come back to later. And it's a play for me. Well, the game I brought to the table is, is what anyone can bring to the table just about any time if you have a sheet of graph paper. It's called Racetrack, a game I've been playing as a young child. It, it's something I play when I have a free time. Um, it's something you can play with a bunch of people. It's something even um, 
Rio Grande created a board game out of. Racetrack is just a simple mathematics game of movement across point-to-point -point movement across a sheet of graph paper using basic vector mathematics. You know, move one space at a time, then two, then three, you slow down gradually also. You can't stop unless you run into a wall. You, you can create your own racetracks on a piece of graph paper and follow some simple rules to move around. I love the game. I never get tired and I play by myself too. More fun to play with others. And uh, the game is called Mississippi Queen, by the way, that Rio Grande came out with in 1997. It's just about the Mississippi River using a modular board, point-to-point -point movement, just like in Racetrack, only adding a pickup and deliver mechanic. I'd love to find that game somewhere at a thrift shop and get that because I love the basic game and I'd, I'd like to try out what Rio Grande did with it. Racetrack and Mississippi Queen. All right. Great. All right. So next up, we're going to take a look at our top 10 board games that can be RPGs. And now for the feature review. All right, so this month our special top 10 feature game list is games, board games, that could be RPGs. But before we jump into what we picked as some of our picks for this, um, Let's define what that means, because obviously there are a lot of games that are already are RPGs, or board games that are based on RPGs. So when we talk about this, what we really mean is a game that for which there is no published, mainstream, um, easily recognizable RPG on the market, and that is not already pulled from a world with, that shares with another RPG. So Lords of Waterdeep doesn't count. As awesome as it is, Dungeons and Dragons is already out there. Also, Castle Ravenloft, obviously, going to be thrown out. Um, and then all the sort of permutations on these ideas. So, Defenders of the Realm, a bit too close to D&D, which is a well-known, professionally published game world. So, that's not going to be a contender here. Yep. And we also avoided any, like, obvious IPs uh, where possible. So, if it's a game based on a movie or a book or a TV series... Uh, in, except in one case, these we could, that could be the whole list right there. That's a whole other yeah. show we can do. Yeah, exactly. RPGs from TV shows. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> our series, our RPGs uh, creation list. Um, but we're gonna go through like that we did last time and give you six games that we think are great fits, and then we'll each pick our favorite. So it'll round out the top ten, the first six in no particular order, of course, um, of games that we feel would make good RPGs, and then of course why we think that. So first on the list, we have Race for the Galaxy, and I'll let Drew take this away. Well, it's one of my favorite games all time. Um, I didn't originally have this name, uh, this game on the list, but I think, Anthony, you threw that on there. That was yours, because I, I couldn't see it as, as characters. You're just players sitting around a table. But what really makes this um, fertile ground for an RPG are the, the locations very evocative locations on so many cards. You can just picture the kind of races that live on these worlds, the kind of uh, activities that go on in some of these developments. I think the RPG can grow out of these locations. And uh, some very uh, clearly defined characters who, who work in these places and, uh, and the combination, the links between these worlds and developments. And I think what really kind of stands out with that coming crossing over to an RPG is when you finish playing Race for the Galaxy, you have this tableau that tells a story. So I'm in charge of this civilization and, you know, through my, 
you know, dealings with alien races and other colonies. I developed these technologies which allowed me to explore these different worlds. And on these worlds, I was, I, you know, I interacted with these strange environments which allowed me to produce and settle enormous universes. So it actually does have that story right there in front of you in the cards. And your role in that game would be navigating that universe and taking advantage of those developments and those unique specific developments because what's interesting about race is that everyone's tableau is going to have different technologies that are in play so my tableau would limit me to those technologies and that would play out in a very interesting unique way the 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 weak link in this the one that a designer could i think solve very easily is how to tie in everyone's tableau with each other i mean normally race for the galaxy is sure. four player solitaire but if we create links between certain developments certain worlds and introduce an element of interplay it can be a very interactive RPG. Well, if you're all, all if you're all in the same world, competing for the same resources and control over these resources, right? The big advantage of tableau building as a as a, a uh, basis for a role playing game is tableau building is essentially a card game version of character progression, right? It's an unusual one in this case because you're talking about acquiring territory rather than acquiring new powers, but that means you're going to play a more diplomatic. Uh, heavy game, right? A game that's more about manipulation and social power than I'm going to come punch you in the face. Do you think? Do you think then we should? Everyone should start from the same core world or system and then grow out in different directions from that, or how? I think that would be a, a good start for that. Yeah. Okay. But I think it's it's a promising idea. All right. Alrighty. So next up on the list, we have a very abstract kind of game that you could probably draw a lot from if you're creative enough, and that's Dixit. So what's interesting for me about the whole Dixic universe, and there's so many different boxes of this, so many cards to kind of play with. Traditionally, you would say, well, you know, it's kind of a party game, it's just a kind of a lot of art, but the art is so invocative, and the, the cards and the characters in this art really do bring so much story out. So when you play Dixic the game, what you're basically doing is, is you're playing the artwork, and you're saying... I'm going to tell you something about the characters, something about this scene that's alive. Can you guess which of the scenes, you know, which of the cards, you know, that, that's showing here? When you're looking at the artwork here, I can absolutely see an Alice in Wonderland type of RPG where you're thrown into this mystical, imaginative world where what you think and what you dream of actually comes into play. So, based upon the cards that you play in Dixit, you can see that you have, you know, the different realms that you inhabit, the different special abilities, whether you're a clockwork person or you're a person made of glass, and how that would kind of interact with each other. Yeah, I mean, Dixit is a great one for a lot of reasons. Um, the companies started building their own world around it now. They're saying it's part of the season's Lords of Zidit universe. <laughs> um, but at the same time, it always reminds me of like these writing prompts or concept art. You know, in, when I was in college, we would get these just one sheet of paper. If there's any words on it, but it would just have a picture of something crazy, you know, like a whale on a bicycle or who knows something ridiculous, and you had to write a story around it and make it seem plausible. And Dixit always gave me that feeling, like I have to come up with a story that seems plausible based on these images. Um, I mean, you can make such a cool universe out of that. It made me think of um, Rod Serling's TV show, the guy who created Twilight Zone. In his later career, he developed a show called Night Gallery mm -hmm. with all these macabre paintings, which 
when you when, if you compare Dixit some of their cards with some of these paintings from his show, you know some of the some of the Dixit cards are very nightmarish. And it, reminds, it makes me yeah. think of a horror themed game. And on that point too, the Dixit cards are you know it would be a beautiful monster manual. Like you're talking yeah. about like yeah, these yeah. are the creatures in the universe that you will be facing. Yeah. So yeah, Dixit's a great one. Um, another good storytelling game, if played properly, is Gloom. Oh, is that me again? Because I love, we talked about Munchkin Gloom. There's all sorts of things you can do with Gloom. Um, the, the, the premise of Gloom is everyone, every player has a family of four characters and they're trying to kill them all off. So in, say, a four-player game, you've got 16 characters right there. You have a lot of interesting, uh, sharply drawn, bizarre creatures. So this is definitely, a, um, you could play it straight as a very dark uh, Victorian suspenseful game, or you can turn it up, turn up the comedy and make it Adam's Family. But either way, the purpose of Gloom is to tell a story of what happens to these people. Uh, again, the problem is making it interactive, uh, just like with Race for the Galaxy. But I think you can you can create event cards or circumstances where certain cre- certain of your family members interact with others and do them harm. I mean, we're actually trying. <laughs> Unlike games where we're trying to do each other harm, we're trying to do each other good and do ourselves harm. Mm-hmm. So I love that. I'd love to see how that would work out in an RPG setting. Almost like an Adam's Family type exactly. of Exactly. Yeah. It would be funny. You know, see, I, I was saying uh, almost playing as the, the opposite of a guardian angel, like a screw tape character whose job is to destroy a family house and you're competing to bring them down first kind of thing and try to stop the other person trying to become like the great demon right the one who can collapse these houses destroy these but lives. you're trying to destroy your own first I mean, well that's they're, the they're the ones yeah. that you're control- You're supposed to destroy right okay, so you're yeah. not a member of the family Then even in Gloom you're not a member of the family they're the family you're responsible for destroying so we're demons basically yeah that's, that's what I was seeing it as huh. okay <laughs> just, very cool that, no, that's the different direction I like that yeah. <laughs> uh, next one on the list here coming back a little bit more to the modern day and pedestrian life is Flashpoint. Yeah, I mean, Flashpoint, it, it almost gives it to you, right? You've got a strong role system already built in, and it's an exciting sort of role system. And it's also the kind of uh, environment in which sort of character drama can build, right? So I think this would have to be a, a role-play-heavy kind of game, because otherwise, right, the same sort of challenges over and over again would get uh, sort of stale feeling, I think. Uh, but if you throw in character drama, if you throw in conflict surrounding these characters, I think you could get something really remarkable coming out of this, right? It would be called Backdraft, the RPG. <laughs> Ron Howard did it with his movie. Yeah. But yeah, you could see. You could create stories yeah. around and it, these people. And when you play the game, they actually have character roles. Yeah. And the character roles do play differently, mm-hmm. so that'd be interesting. And also you get to play the dog. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I want to be the dog. <laughs> the dog is awesome. Super fast. Yes. Yeah. And, and by adding a little bit of character conflict, it's one one of the nice things about systems like this where you have a, a, a recognized social structure making people cooperate is you can play characters who really don't like one another sure. but have to get along. Ah, right? yeah. and, and that's much more plausible than in, like in the old D&D setting where he's like, all right, I'm just going to stop off at the next tavern and you guys can keep going, but I can't stand you. Right. Characters that are normally in conflict have to learn to work together. And it's not like a, a straightforward PvP game either, because you can't just kill another firefighter. No. Right. Although you could leave one behind, mm-hmm. and that's happened in games. But this really reminds me of your tradition, traditional dungeon crawl game. I mean, think of Flashpoint. What is it? You're going into a confined space, surrounded by danger, in the dark. And you have a goal yeah. you're trying to reach. Yeah. yeah. So... 
Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, next one on the list here is Love Letter. Uh, now, this game obviously doesn't have a ton of story to it, at least at first glance. You have a few different roles. There's obviously characters behind there somewhere, some very descriptive artwork. But if you know anything about the universe in which uh, AEG put this on top of, and we're talking about the American version of the game, it is from the Tempest universe, and there's a lot to mine there. Oh, yeah, one of my favorite games, Dominaire. Um, and you have so many different character cards with different abilities in Dominair. They have must be dozens at least, so hard part would be singling out. Well, I guess you just rely on the characters from Love Letter. Just go I from mean, there. I mean, Love Letter itself, trying to get that Love Letter to the princess. Yeah. The queen has been imprisoned and she's destroyed. I mean, it's almost like this, like a Jane Austen but, type of universe where you're one of these suitors and you're dealing with the political intrigue, the backstabbing, yeah. and the love, which you don't get in a lot of D&D games, but there's love and there's relationships and that would play a big part into it. The Tempest world already has the, the map laid out, all the locations, the characters, the, uh, the, the guilds and yes. the, the parties. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Lots of draw from there already. So that yeah. simple little card game, you could blow that up into a massive story. It'd be a lot of fun. Million yeah. dollar idea. Yeah. All right. So the next one here, and this is the one exception to the rule of pulling from existing IPs, but I think the idea here is pretty cool, and that's Spartacus. Yeah, so the idea with making Spartacus into an RPG, and I'm a little bit worried you might be stepping on existing properties, but I don't know them yet, so <laughs> you can yell at me in the comments if, I make the, if I'm making a mistake. Uh, and there is a role-playing game based off the same property like this that is produced professionally and sold as opposed to a homebrew, because there's a homebrew for everything. Um, but the idea here would be you play as the powerful Roman families that you play as. In Spartacus, right, you're trying to gain esteem partially through the games but also through backdoor diplomatic means. Again, this would be a sort of diplomacy game, a sort of uh, Machiavellian diplomacy game, right? You're trying to steal power for yourself and for your family in the Roman... Is this Roman Republic era or Roman... No. Trying to steal power for yourself and your family in the uh, Roman political sphere, right? And I think there's just that's just a very fertile ground, right? It's an interesting period of history and there's a sort of lawlessness for the very powerful, and they have the ability to cut throats, make people disappear, that sort of thing. Yeah, and then you, you layer on top of that the, the modern analog of, of professional boxing with its shady mafia characters mm -hmm. and, and fixed fights, and you can do that in Spartacus also, where there's a lot going on behind the stage. It's really not about the fighters killing each other, but all the strings that are being pulled at the same time. And in the board game itself... All of the characters, whether they're, they're gladiators or slaves or even the family, they all have special powers and abilities. Mm -hmm. So you already have a starting point from a character perspective. Yeah. All right. So those are the six that we put out there, and all of them great ideas, but those are the six that we thought would be great RPGs you know, as a group. Uh, and now we're going to go through and do our top four, one for each of us, as the one that we personally think is really going to knock it out of the park if it somehow became an RPG. All right, so Danny, why don't you lead us off with your pick? All right, so my pick is a little awkward, but it's Once Upon a Time. Now, this is a storytelling game, so there's an obvious connection here in that it has a narrative, it builds narratives, and that's what role-playing games do. 
And I think you could get away with using this to try to build a sort of DM-less system, right, where no one has to sit out and run the game because there are cards telling you how the game unfolds. And you could layer that over a pretty generic role-playing setting. I think more interesting, however, would be if you created character classes whose power were to whose powers were to affect the narrative. Right, so it's a sort of meta-narrative where the people in the characters in this story, and it is a story, right, a story world, not you know they they are not real within their own world. In fact, right, they are fictional characters. But they have powers that allow them to affect and twist the narratives in ways that benefit them. And I think that would be a really interesting, if somewhat challenging, game to design. Right? A game about narratives, about manipulating narratives, uh, and about characters vying for position with Changing them. the story. Yeah. I mean, it's not always the happily ever after. You can change that. Story about stories. I like that. Yeah, I think it'd be fun. Um, my particular favorite that I would love to see is Betrayal on the house... on. Of the house? At the house? I always have that problem, too. It's like 15 different places it actually is at. Betrayal <laughs> at the, at house, the house on the hill. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's, it's a spooky, creepy horror game. I think it would be a lot of fun to play. But it needs a, a skin. It needs some something added to it to really make it pop. And what better property to mash with that than Scooby-Doo? Really. And this is happening all the time. All these games are getting these new skins and new characters being added. What would be wrong with Scooby-Doo at Betrayal House on the Hill? They're doing it already. I mean, that's... It's a natural. And, and unlike games like Clue, where there's murders or anything, this is about monsters taking over certain characters. That could easily happen. You know, we're the Scooby-Doo gang. We're in a house investigating it, and all of a sudden some monster pops out and, and takes one of us without the others knowing... That could be a lot of fun to play. I mean, there's still the serious element of fighting a monster, and yet a little bit of lightheartedness, too. And there's Scooby Snacks, which are yes, always, always included in the box. <laughs> yeah. One thing I like about that a lot is you can swing from really silly and lighthearted if you want to, or you can go straight on towards the Cthulhu end of the spectrum, right? You can go dark, Lovecraftian stories if you want to, right? Oh, you can swing back and forth. You could do both at the same time if you're really talented. Scooby-Doo Cthulhu. <laughs> you gotta have that. <laughs> And Cthulhu would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for those kids in there. <laughs> those pesky kids <laughs> and then meddling dogs and the 13 elder sons. That uh. Oh, Scooby. So the game that I would really love to see as an RPG would be Conquest of Planet Earth. This is a Flying Frog production. It kind of turns things upside down because you're not playing the humans fighting these 1950s aliens. You're actually the aliens trying to take over Earth. Now, what's great about this game is the aliens are very unique, very interesting, and they have special abilities and powers already on their player card. So as your particular alien takes over Earth using their abilities, there are other aliens that are cooperating with you, but only to a certain point. And the monster manual aren't really monsters so much, but they're humans, and all different types of humans. And the humans themselves get special abilities, too. So you might have an Air Force with a hard veteran who, and also has a mad scientist with them. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of different kind of permutations as far as what you might be facing in the game. And a number of different locations that your alien could travel to and encounter all these types of humans that you're trying to squash. So are you going to be um, Clang or Kodos? 
uh, it's kind of hard, you know. <laughs> so many differences between the two, but I'm going to pick out one. I'm not sure which. And actually, there is an alien race that is identical to that. Oh, Sinti. really? There is. <laughs> really? It's all the 1950s tropes in one game. Oh, man. That's oh, um, but I'm talking about 90s, the Moon Knights. Okay. From Aqua Teen Hunger Force. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. But those are, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everything's in this box. It's great. Awesome. Uh, my my game that I picked uh, for this final pick is Robinson Crusoe. Um, now, the board game itself is this great experience, this wonderful story that kind of evolves depending on the cards you pull and how they come out of the deck. And I love that element of not reading the bottom half of the card and getting surprised later when that panther jumps out of the jungle at you. Um, <laughs> this whole idea of a desert island and the you know matching up with these people you don't know and hoping that you guys have the right combination of skills to survive and the island throwing literally everything possible at you to make sure you do not survive uh, is really cool. Um, honestly, the board game kind of covers this, but if you took that and created more of a story out of it, uh, you know, even going further than the game does, you can have some really cool adventures uh, on this kind of limitless island where you could find everything from, you know, cannibals to King Kong to a hidden village underneath the volcano. Who knows what you're going to find on there. Uh, this is a really cool thing to me. I always love it. So I think it'll be a great RPG. I would look forward to the Swiss Family Robinson expansion pack. Yeah, right. That'd be perfect for that. Treasure Island expansion pack. Yeah. Treehouse edition. <laughs> That's it. And I feel like survival against all odds is a theme that role-playing games don't take on very well. There are a few that have tried, but I don't know that many of them have succeeded in giving you that feeling of, no, seriously, anything can happen to you, and you just need to scrape by, right? Your victory is not dying. Yeah, it's, and I can see why it's so hard to do, because if... Like, a typical co-op game, you're going to lose a lot. And that's not depressing because you're having fun and it only takes an hour or two. In an RPG, if you lose a lot, you're like, I don't want to play this anymore. You keep killing my character. Yeah, yeah imagine in a... I mean, we, we all love the tension of games where there's so few resources. You're just scraping by. But it, this would be an RPG game where that would be an essential element. Yeah. Of, of bar barely having enough resources and trying to find more. Yeah, and the GM would basically be the island, mm -hmm. you know? Doesn't even have to be like this embodied, unembodied voice to just be like, "I'm the island. I will destroy you." <laughs> Lost. Yeah, let's not go that route. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Never mind. Forget what I just said. <laughs> All right. So that's our top ten games that we wish could be RPGs from board games that are not already RPGs. Now, if you hate top ten lists like I do, include the eleventh clue. We've all played a character when we play Clue. We've all been Mrs. White. We've all been Professor Plum. There you go. Number 11. Who killed the established format? Who <laughs> <laughs> killed it? In the recording room with an impromptu expansion. <laughs> all right. So that's everything for this segment. Next up, final round with Drew. Our final round. Um, it's Columbus Day. Columbus Day weekend. And... There are so many great explorer games uh, of investigating new worlds. And we, we've all had games like that where you flip over tiles and, and enter new unexplored territories. So what's your favorite exploration game? Well, for me, it would have to be Star Trek Fleet Captains. Now, what's interesting about this game is it really kind of connects to the original Star Trek TV universe where 
each and every movement onto a tile allows a tile to be flipped over and you could just be in just normal space you could be in a nebula or you can be in an interesting planet and then you'll roll a die and then the die tells you if you have an encounter and then you'll pull an encounter card and it'll play play out like an episode from Star Trek hmm. so it's really interesting to explore this vast universe and try to reach certain kind of goals that kind of will win you the game from the other different races that are playing. So I'm, I'm a pretty big fan of Forbidden Desert, Forbidden Island as well, but I think Forbidden Desert is better because I like the added complexity. Uh, and there's an exploration element to that. It's not really a game about exploring, but there is definitely a part of it which is exploring the local environment to find what you need to survive. What's interesting about that game is, yes, you're exploring, but then it gets covered up, and you're exploring again, and it gets covered up, and you're exploring again, and you're like, stop it! <laughs> so for a very small game, you're exploring a lot. <laughs> that is true. Well, the exploration is trying to find those uh, the pieces to the uh, the relics. To mm-hmm. the... Yes. And water, and to the tunnels, and all sorts of stuff. And for a very small game that doesn't seem to have much kind of interesting, unique kind of places, when you flip those tiles over... Seeing that kind of, I don't know what you call it, steampunk technology, like, the, yeah. you know, protecting yeah. you from the sun and things like that, and these ancient wells, it's really interesting. Yeah. All right. So for me, and I want it to be like a civilization type game, but I don't think any civilization type game has really mastered this exploration element quite yet. Um, so I'm going to go on the fantasy end of the spectrum and go with Mage Knight, the board game, which I think is an amazing exploration game. Just. It's got that element where you're bringing out new tiles, but you're also exploring each of those individual tiles, and there's like multiple decks of cards to draw from and treasures you can get, and you never really know what you're going to fight. Um, and there's different ways to play the game, a couple of which being heavy on the exploration and the things where you're just trying to find things. I mean, the tutorial is basically you're just trying to find this city. That's it. Like, that's how you learn to play the game. It's just getting from one point A to point B by, like, exploring this unraveling map. Um, and that's pretty cool to me. It's... it's it's a heavy game. It takes a lot of time to learn, a lot of time to teach, but it's well worth it once you get there. The game that I think uh, sums up exploration very well is T-Call. Um, and it was won all sorts of awards a few years back. I think people have forgotten about it because there's been T-Call 2. T-Call is, uh, if I'm pronouncing it right, T-Call, T-Call. It's exploring a jungle, basically, like the Mayan jungle, and you're looking for artifacts, you're looking for ancient temples, um, you're hacking your way through, tile by tile, through the jungle and seeing what you find. Tikal 2 takes it the next step further and you find the temple and you're exploring your way through it, um, trying to find the treasures without getting blocked. You want to be able to get back out. Um, so if, if your idea of exploration is going into the jungle on safari and hacking your way through, those are both good choices. That's great. All right, awesome. So that's all of our uh, choices for this week. We had a bunch of choices on two different segments. So if you have suggestions for games that could be RPGs or uh, games about exploration that you want us to take a look at, definitely drop us a line on BoardGameGeek in our guild or on BoardGamersAnonymous.com in the show notes. Um, But that's everything for this week. Make sure you connect with us on Facebook, on Twitter, on BoardGameGeek, and on BoardGamersAnonymous.com. That's everything for this week. This is Anthony. This is Chris. This is Daniel. And this is Drew. And until next time, we'll save you a seat at the table. You couldn't think of anything this time? Oh, I did. I I thought I'd go straight this time. (laughs) (laughs) If you don't, if you keep... Drew is all up, man. Yeah, no. No, no, no.